0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce The Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon.
1: Visit patreon.com slash Track, and thanks. William Burroughs was one of the original beat writers, and he had a great deal of influence over music. This week's guest describes him as a homosexual drug addict born in the Gilded Age who killed his wife in a drunken game of William Tell and wrote infamous prose featuring orgasmic executions, shape-shifting aliens and all manner of addicts, sadists, and creepy crawlies. We're very pleased to welcome Casey Ray for his book William S. Burroughs and the Cult of Rock and Roll. Casey, thank you for joining us.
2: My pleasure, yeah, and that's um, quite a grisly description to keep things off. <laughs> it's from your book, it's what you said. <laughs> <laughs> I have no memory of writing this, it must have happened during uh, one of my, uh, my fugue states. Uh, no, I... I do remember writing it, and I, and, I, and I stand by that description in the sense that uh, you know, Burroughs is such a, a, a searingly radical uh, writer and intellect and also a person with a very checkered personal history, which I think in part is why so many musicians in certain genres, particularly punk uh, music, but you know, also many, many other forms of, of, of rock and roll and its variants were drawn to him.
1: Reading through this book, I I just found it fascinating that he was just like Zelig, showing up at all these major musical movements from the 70s until pretty much near his death. Yet, he didn't even care that much about the music, did he?
2: No, he uh, did not profess to have any particular knowledge of, uh, understanding of the formal aspects of music. And I don't think he would actually characterize himself as a fan. Um, his uh, tastes in music were sort of uh, formed by his, uh, you know, experiences with the kind of romantic uh, pop songs of the time. This is like a Gilded Age, uh, you know, radio and um, 78 records kind of situation. Um, his, uh, the executor of Burroughs' literary estate, James Growerholz, who uh, was also uh, with him as his personal assistant and, uh, and editor, and hype man, uh, I think, um, you know, from the uh, late '70s uh, to the end of his life, Garhold shared with me a playlist that he made of songs that Burroughs was actually fond of, and some of the songs are just delightful. But none of them could be uh, could be considered uh, even slightly resembling the uh, music of the musicians who were influenced by Burroughs. Um, but at the same time, I think he did understand certain aspects of performance art, uh, and and saw music as a very uh, effective vehicle in opening up those um, those intuitive uh, spaces uh, in which he liked to work. Um, Patti Smith, his his friend, his true abiding friendship with Patti Smith. Uh, in some ways was based on a mutual respect, um, which was rare from his side, where he really did recognize the sort of shamanic stagecraft that uh, Patti Smith was so excellent at engendering. Uh, and other times, too, you know, he might have been um, a little bit reserved in, in his praise, but he did recognize, you know, for example, um, the sort of bright-eyed, wild-eyed uh Insouciance of Paul McCartney at that time, uh, and um, and he also recognized, you know, that Bob Dylan was a very self-possessed young man who was going places. I think that uh, in in uh, in the book, these key meetings with Burroughs um, tend to uh, have more of an impact for the musician uh, than maybe they do for Burroughs personally. Although I would say that he has he was also affected by these experiences because. Uh, Through the recognition of music's, um, you know, cultural potency, he saw an opportunity to seed some of his ideas. And I think that really happened in the post-punk era.
0: The first time I ever was able to equate Burroughs with music was uh, in a Rolling Stone article in the 70s. You may have even run across it where um, Burroughs and David Bowie interview each other. And I remember getting this. As a kid, and, and I said, well, I could approach this. I really didn't want to approach it. <laughs> but the first question that Burroughs asked David Bowie is, Do you design all your own clothes, and that did not <laughs> register with me <laughs> at all. I wanted him to talk about the music and stuff, but, I, but that's, that's how unusual uh, I thought the relationship with Burroughs and music became when his first question was about the performance aspect of it rather than where does your inspiration come from.
2: Well, you know the interesting thing about the Bowie Burroughs exchange is that um, you know Bowie uh, in that Rolling Stone article seemed you know he really wanted to impress Burroughs. He yeah. had it, yeah. You know Bowie, much like Patti Smith, had his has his own pantheon of uh, of heroes, uh, you know, and the altars at which he worships. And Burroughs is it was was um, significant in that pantheon for both uh, uh, Patti and David Bowie. Bowie, uh, though, I think might have taken uh, some stuff out of the Burroughs, um, you know, outlook and mindset and and corpus that you have to dig a little bit deeper to uncover. And it wasn't all just there in that interview, although that is a really fascinating, uh, you know, kind of pop art intersection uh, of yeah. that time, and it's very much a time capsule. But you know, Bowie approached cut ups. Uh, you know, for the, for listeners who don't know, uh, William S. Burroughs was Well known uh, for, um, I I hate to say, I can't say popularizing, sort of evangelizing a creative method called cut-ups. It was originally um, kind of discovered or stumbled into by his close friend uh, and and. personal muse, uh, Brian Geisen in Paris in 1958, Geisen was uh, slicing up some uh, canvas and there was a newspaper underneath and he cut that into four quadrants and he rearranged them and he found that there was some sort of, you know, hidden text uh, with associative meanings that emerged from the from the seemingly at random
1: uh, juxtaposition. Was it, was it truly that accidental because Tristan, Tristan Zara and the Dadaist were doing that in the 20s?
2: Oh, yeah you're absolutely right and I do reference that in the book yeah. um, you know I think uh, the the Dada cats were you know literally pulling stuff out of a hat um, but you know the formalized version of this as it was practiced by Burroughs and Geisen with text was originally, you know, four quadrants of a page uh, of text rearranged. Um, Of course they took that into, you know, other realms and and started to do visual and in Burroughs' case, audio. And this is where you get a secret path to like sampling and remix culture, which is fascinating. But to get back to Bowie real quick, Bowie really internalized the idea of cut up and mix and match as part of his overall, you know, aesthetic. Uh, both visually in music and in his lyrical compositions, he went as far as to get a software developer in the 90s to create a uh, cut-up machine, an app, basically, to make that work easier, Um, which is actually not all that dissimilar from what Burroughs was uh, doing with his... um, boyfriend, Ian Somerville, who happened to be an EMI Beatles engineer, Um, you know, and uh, you can imagine trying to do this in the 1960s, right? You know, just like mountains of code to get, you know, ones and zeros to get like uh, a giant machine to spit out like a couple of words at random. Um, Bowie, you know, took that to another level in the '90s, and as I understand, continued to use cut-ups uh, in his lyrical compositions right up through *Black Star*, his final album. But I think the identikit attitude of being able to make use of all of these um, spare parts of culture and kind of create new um, correspondences and uh, uh, was was really attractive to Bowie. And I think that there's a sort of magical thinking occult through line here um, with folks like Bowie uh, and Burroughs, who was very much a magical thinker and very much believed that you could uncover, uh, you know, sort of uh, other truths of reality that are obscured from your everyday vision by interjecting uh, acts of randomness uh, into operations. And um, he viewed all artistic expression as essentially a magical operation. I think at that time Bowie probably felt similarly, and of course, when you get to um, some of the punk and post-punk artists, particularly um, Genesis p Orange and Throbbing Gristle, they created an entire kind of um, you know postmodern uh, technological uh, inf- te- technology informed apparatus. To do that work.
1: So I first discovered Burroughs around that time. I call this my high fidelity period. I had a friend who worked in a record store, and there were five or six of us who hung out there. And it was like a small record store that was a satellite of a larger record store. So the guy who ran it got to bring in all sorts of stuff and imports and everything. This is in Queens, where I grew up. And one of my friends was into Burroughs, and I started reading it. And I just couldn't. I just couldn't read his work. And I think this is a common situation that people appreciate as influence but the actual writing is difficult but at the time there was this confluence of Burroughs research magazine had come out you mentioned throbbing gristle i was really into that for a while and we were getting it was as if there was a there was a moment when all that was getting much more exposure than say in the 60s when it would have been even more underground i mean you could buy research magazine in Barnes & Noble in New York City. So this was getting a lot of exposition. And all of a sudden, we were seeing the influence of Burroughs without necessarily people writing like Burroughs and writing like his subjects—
2: Yep. It, uh, you know, in that true viral sense, remember Burroughs thought that uh, word Language was a virus, is a
1: virus, that
2: information yep. is a virus. It, you know, it, it, it jumped species or it moved into, you know, it hopped the fence, so to speak. And, um, you know, in the Burroughs mindset of, de- of uh, cut-ups, you know, being the sort of engine of de-authorship, the uh, kind of the, the, the precursor of our remix culture where uh, authorship is obliterated and it's just a bunch of refabricated information uh, in uh, small units of communication, as he would call them, a.k.a. memes. You know, I don't think it really would have bothered him so terribly <laughs> that this is the end result. It may, may be that this was part of the larger operation. Um, but you are right in terms of the impenetrability of some of Burroughs's work, um, particularly his cut-up work. Um, personally, like, you know, look, I don't go to bed at night with a, a burrow with naked lunch under my pillow or uh, you know, like um a lot of this to me was uh when I was writing this book, I had an intellectual fascination in the histories. Um, but I was also sort of reconciling my own um prior interests, my interests as a teenager and as a young adult. I was that guy at the record store. I managed an independent record store for a whole bunch of years around that time, um, uh or maybe a little bit later. Um, but I came into my awareness like the 90s. I came into my awareness of Burroughs probably at, at a similar point in the mid to late 1980s, where some of that underground uh, culture was starting to bubble up to the surface. However, I would I would suggest that this was happening even earlier because in Great Britain in the 1960s, the reason that Paul McCartney took steps to install Burroughs in his a basement flat owned by his bandmate Ringo Starr. For the purposes of audio research uh, and, and development, a.k.a. messing around with tape machines, was because he had picked up or somebody had given him a record uh, that Burroughs made. I think it was called Call Me Burroughs that came out like right at the uh, sort of advent of London swinging summer. And um, in certain hipster cognoscenti circles, the ones that Barry Miles ran in, the ones that avant-garde artists like, Yoko Ono uh, met, uh, met John Lennon within, you know, that that scene um, uh, had space for Burroughs, and the Stones were interested in it too, and um, you know the Mick Jagger and Burroughs are kind of have an oil and and water relationship of uh, sort of mutual antagonism and um, pop cultural codependence, <laughs> but they uh, but they nonetheless traveled in the same circles, and I think it was. The dynamic of that uh, may have been not terribly dissimilar from what you and I experienced, Kirk. You know, and we sort of sort of came to awareness of this whole other world that opened up. And when I was writing the book, in a lot of ways, it was a way it was a means for me to rediscover that awakening in myself. You know, of course, you know some of this story. Like I mentioned, Burroughs has a checkered past and that, like, some of the influence that he had uh, may not have been positive. Uh, You know, I also wanted to take a
1: shower after I was done writing this book. (laughs) It's hard to separate the man from the art in this sort of case. Yeah. He did kill his wife stupidly. He was a junkie. He did live a difficult life, yet he lived a long life. You'd expect, it's kind of like Keith Richards, you know, they just keep going on and on.
2: Yeah, he persisted. Um, You know, the interesting thing about his character is that on one level, Grauerholtz, James Grauerholtz, his literary executor uh, and and close companion, kind of cracked the riddle for me. He, He described Uras as kind of a prism where everyone sees sort of what they want to see reflected. Uh, And and it may be because, um, you know, Burroughs didn't really, he wasn't a salesman in that regard. You know, Ginsburg was always out there sort of hyping his friends and trying to, like, you know, uncover the next big thing and, you know, doing tours with Dylan and stuff. And, you know, Burroughs, I think, sometimes would participate in that because he understood the value of publicity. But really what he was interested in was, you know, seeding his ideas, and continuing to push his own conception of, of what the edge was in uh, in consciousness. Um, you know, the funny thing is he didn't like consciousness expanding drugs. So, the, like, one part of the 1960s culture went off in this way, you know, through the sort of the LSD epiphany. Uh, and uh, Burroughs, you know, had an early experience with psychedelics when he went into the jungles of Ecuador to find the plant yage uh now known uh to a lot of uh weekend um uh sort of shaman <laughs> as uh ayahuasca ceremonies and stuff but he he didn't have any kind of uh, ceremony yet be- besides like going deep into the jungle and finally finding uh somebody who could introduce him to this plant he had a miserable time uh much as he did uh he didn't he didn't really enjoy his friend Timothy Leary's Harvard uh psilocybin mushroom experiments either um so he preferred the sort of narcotizing kind of uh, great womb bliss of heroin and uh, and and um opiates um that said i think that you know he was really deeply committed to going beyond what he found he believed to be the sort of strictures of human existence uh the conceptual mental strictures he believed that word was a virus and it was also kind of a, a, an agent of control um it, it sort of um, fixes us to a certain set of conceptions and ideas that are contrary to the liberation that he, that he sought. Um, and I think that's an interesting thing.
1: So that brings me, obviously, this is a music podcast, but I'm really interested in literature. And when you look back, without Burroughs, you wouldn't have Samuel Delaney, you wouldn't have Thomas Pynchon. His influence in literature was extraordinary, the way, it, particularly in science fiction. Was there the same attitude of authors who wanted to be around Burroughs and in his aura? In the early days, okay, for those who don't know, he's a character in Kerouac's on the road, he was friend of Kerouac and Ginsburg. But later, did authors flock to him the same way that musicians did sure um one comes to mind immediately and it does have a, a, a connects back to music william gibson
2: who's sure. sort of uh you know is the cornerstone of what what came to be known as cyberpunk a, a a genre variant um of science fiction but also you know arguably is kind of like an entire wing of the house in our modern understanding of like science fiction uh you know, it's William Gibson's world, and we just live in it. I guess now
1: he's incredibly prescient with what's been happening in the past few years. Well, that prescience, I think, was something that he saw in Burroughs, and he,
2: uh, and as a kid, he was really attracted to that. The interesting thing with Gibson is that his description of what Burrough the effect of Burroughs was musical. Like he said, this is like when you know somebody has a new guitar pedal, or Jimi Hendrix has a wah pedal and a fuzz pedal. It was just like suddenly. <laughs> And so he used, William Gibson used musical rock and roll electric terms to describe the effect that uh, discovering Burroughs had on him. And um, I think that this is where, you know, the influence in literature kind of um, uh, pans out. Certainly with st- with folks like Pinchon, you know, the, the, the deeply abstracted um, prose, anybody who sort of minds that. Kind of uh, realm of experimental literature owes something to Burroughs. I think anybody who is working um, in in transgressive art owes much to Burroughs, and not just through direct influence. Because Naked Lunch was subject to an obscenity case that, um, had it gone the other way, um, might have resulted in uh, a chilling effect that would have deprived us of a great deal of this art, both in literature and in music. How long after the Howell trial was that? Not too long. Uh, not too long after. And I, I, the legal details are actually in the book because, you know, my day job is actually kind of in the realm of uh, of, of music licensing and federal policy around, um, around copyright. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I stumbled into that and, you know, ended up you know, failing upwards, I guess. <laughs> 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 like everything. Uh, but, uh, but so I do actually uh, explore the, the sort of the, the details and the sort of impact of the, of the censorship of battle over naked lunch, but for music people, kind of the takeaway is guys like Frank Zappa, who are also a hu- who is also a huge, uh, Burroughs guy, uh, maybe more in the sense that he appreciated that attitude and that, that deeply and. Anti-authoritarian, anti-establishmentarian um, uh, posture that Burroughs struck, but he was very aware of the of the reason that he was able to do the music that he wanted to do in a popular market was basically because of of uh, you know Burroughs' bravery in bringing Naked Lunch to the market and the folks who defended that his publisher uh, and um, and uh, and uh, Norman Mailer testified. At that trial, you know, there were people who really went to bat uh, for freedom of ex- expression there. And you can see that show up later when, you know, Frank Zappa goes to, the, uh, goes to Congress to testify in the Parents Music Resource Council PMRC hearings. You know, I, it's sort of like a, a, a Burroughs callback. Zappa actually uh, performed a reading of the talking asshole routine from Naked Lunch. At a celebration in in New York City uh, called the Nova Convention, which you know celebrated the life and work of uh, William S. Burroughs when he returned to the States in the in the late 1970s in New York, but also kind of served as a forum for you know some of these avant-garde thinkers and a lot of musicians, even at that time, to uh, you know express themselves along Burroughsian lines. And uh, Frank was there.
0: I never got the impression that Burroughs made a parody of himself, like. A lot of that sort of character could, like, I'm thinking Andy Warhol, but... Hunter S. Thompson. You know, yeah, in, in exactly. Hunter S. Thompson devolved into yeah. a self-character. Exactly, but why did he not ever become that? Why did he not ever? Why Why did he maintain his integrity through his entire life? I don't. In, in
2: some ways, I think it's because he couldn't be pinned down to any particular scene or culture, and that's what allowed him to appear Zelig-like, you know, in yeah. all of these different uh, eras. Like, why would this, you know? relic of the jazz age, you know, be of interest to industrial uh, post-punk artists, you know, Why? but at the same time, be of interest to, you know, Brian Jones and Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, to be of interest to Paul McCartney, to be of interest to Patti Smith. I mean, it is a, Thurston Moore, Sonic Youth, you know, it's a, it's a pretty broad array of artists. And I think the reason is because, you know, he was authentic to himself. And um, that was also very attractive to folks who want to um, cultivate their own iconoclasm. And uh, But it also means that he moves a little bit more freely than folks who become uh, sort of trapped, you know, in their own... Um, uh, Self caricature, although Norman Mailer uh, expressed a little bit of jealousy about William Burroughs. One time, he said uh, Burroughs can get up there and uh, you know, because of the nature of his like speaking voice and delivery, can you know essentially read the weather report and get a, a,
1: a belly laugh. <laughs> I'll put some links in the show notes to some recordings by William Burroughs on Apple Music. He just has this wonderful voice. It's like, it's it, it's got this drawl. it's got this, this slowness to it, and it's got this melodiousness that you could just imagine, like Walt Whitman speaking like that. <laughs> For
2: sure. And actually, you know, I think that that is just as much of a part of his influence in the music realm as his, uh, you know, written... Text uh, uh, and it does have to do with that, you know, peculiar cadence and the arrangement of words delivered out of his, you know, rendered by his own voice box. You know, he had that creaky way of talking, and he would take <laughs> pauses, and then you know, and it just had a sort of hypnotic kind of uh, quality. Of course, the stuff that he was saying sometimes was blazingly, you know, hilarious. Um, he, uh, I think, at his best, is an arch satirist. In the sort of Swiftian sense. Uh, And, um, you know, we just had the, you know, the American holiday of Thanksgiving and every Thanksgiving uh, somebody, this time it was the Allen Ginsberg estate, uh, tweeted me the uh, Burroughs' famous Thanksgiving prayer. Um, where he goes on a litany of sort of ancient sins and curses that America <laughs> has committed or finds itself under.
1: I'll put a link to that in the show notes because Apple Music has a video of him reading it. I tweeted that on Thanksgiving myself. I just want to get back to, I'm just looking at all the names here that showed up, and I'm assuming this was the Nova Convention, Club 57 at Irving Plaza, the Blondie, Robert Fripp, Suicide, the B-52s, Philip Glass, Laurie Anderson, even John Cage. Now, I know enough about John Cage to know that John Cage was probably put off a bit by Burroughs, and yet it's Cage's embracing of randomness that he probably saw in Burroughs, isn't it? Yeah,
2: I I would agree with that, because, you know, and and again, Cage was a a very um, serious Zen Buddhist, and and I think— was always looking to find ways to to have signifiers that signify nothing more than the space in which phenomena manifests and um and 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 burroughs was all about new spaces <laughs> so uh so in some ways uh in some ways i think they they're they are, there they is simpatico um burroughs lifestyle probably was not as uh as um relevant to Cage, although, you know, the homosexuality is is obviously another aspect of that, particularly at a time, these are folks coming out of the 40s and the 50s, and it was an entirely different culture. And um, to be transgressive uh, in in your art and, and also be outside of the conventions of society in your personal life, um, I don't think nowadays, you know, a lot of that kind of Thing, you know follow my instagram you know what i mean but back then it was just uh it was trailblazing um and uh and people were drawn to it um the interesting thing though just to just to put a um, finer point on the on burroughs's own performances of his work his readings and stuff That's also a key to why he uh, started getting looked at by like hip hop and electronic music producers as well, because they heard something in his voice that was just it's sample bait. You know, you really just want to put some kind of beats and grooves behind that. And you have folks who did that at a deeper level, like Bill Laswell, who I talked to for the book. And, you know, if anybody wants to look up Bill Laswell, he has quite an interesting CV, but you know, he, um, He's he worked on stuff that positioned Burroughs in a way that is both musical, but also uh, relates to some of the deeper themes that Burroughs was trying to impart or get across. Uh, But then there's folks like the disposable hip hop uh, heroes of hypocrisy, you know, Michael Franti and and those cats. They just thought it was it was it was like great stuff to put dope beats behind. Uh, And, um, you know, uh, the other part of it is like beat culture, the idea of liberation, freedom. You know, go fast, feel good. You know, that's just part of the American psyche, uh, or was. And and I think that uh, at this time in American history, where people maybe not uh, are maybe feeling the the opposite, uh, it's fun to kind of look at a different time period. And Burroughs is is definitely a major figure in that in that sort of twentieth um, uh, century uh, milieu.
1: I've always felt that the beats were an echo of the transcendentalists, Emerson and Thoreau and those people. And I'm wondering who the next echo is. I think maybe we just have too much now to find that sort of concentration of of idealism.
2: Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. I've been, sadly, I'm supposed to be researching my, my new book, uh, but I, I go on these sort of side- uh, Diversions, where like right now, I'm really obsessed with Percy by Shelley, and um, you know, I think you know he was a sort of a, a cornerstone early transcendentalist in the English traditions, also quite radical, uh, very very radical. Um, but you're right, in the sort of English speaking traditions, that can be extended to Thoreau, and um, and the, and uh, that also um, touches on the sort of um, what I'm looking at in my next book, which is. Uh, kind of American Buddhism, rock and roll culture as sort of promulgated by the Grateful Dead and uh, and the psychedelic experience.
1: And regular listeners to the show know that I was delighted when I heard that you were writing a book about that. So another quote from your book, will end with this, is Burroughs a good influence or a bad influence? The answer probably depends on the observer. Nevertheless, it is telling that so many other artists found something relatable in his work, lifestyle, attitude, and intellect. And I think that really sums it up. There's no, there was an X factor in Burroughs. He wasn't a musician. He didn't particularly care about music. He didn't write song lyrics or anything, but there was something about him that, that drew people to him and that inspired them.
2: Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, the, the good, bad influence is kind of a false dichotomy. I pose the question because I want people to think about it. You know, I also, you know, I'm a, I'm a, Feral academic, so I'm, you know, I teach uh, grad school courses that I've designed on on some of these related topics. But when I push my students in in a direction, sometimes I'll use those kinds of uh, false dichotomies just to force their minds into that place to make them confront, you know, uh, those dichotomies and see if they can reconcile them in their own understanding. I don't know that there's a real answer to that question, because it depends on... No, but on- it
1: kind of reminds me of those public service announcements, a mind is a terrible <laughs> thing to waste, Yeah, or what we had when I was a teenager in New York, it's 10pm, do you know where your children are? Yeah, well, you know, part of that is like,
2: you know, I want, I, I think that the, the whole theory behind like this type of investigation and in discourse is to be unafraid to look at things and to see them as they are and to contemplate how they relate to you know other phenomenon that that is at the heart of the of any like uh intellectual investigation and burroughs was a no matter what you think of him he's right up there with all the other deeply flawed problematic troubled geniuses of his century and um and when we look at that uh, you know, the sort of Trojan horse here is that, hey, look, a lot of rock stars. This is a cool, salacious you know, story, and it's a rip and yarn. And I do believe that it is all of those things. But what it allows uh, allowed me to do as I was investigating and, and composing this was to really try to uh, explore those associations and the deeper meanings contained within them. Hopefully. So when you're enjoying the ripping yarn or putting on your favorite record, you'll uh, you'll be enriched. There'll be a, a, a greater kind of um, uh, recognition of those connections. And um, uh, if that if that happened, then awesome. I'm not the, the, the judge of that, but that certainly is the intent. And I'm really delighted that uh, I had the opportunity to do that.
1: Okay, Casey Ray, thank you very much. The book is William S. Burroughs and the Cult of Rock and Roll, and I strongly recommend it if you're into this history of rock and roll or if you grew up in some of the period that's covered like I did. Casey, great to talk to you, and I think we'll be talking to you again in the future about the dead and other things. Awesome. Thank you so much.
0: Hey, if you've listened to uh, three or four or more episodes of the show and and you like it and you like it keeping you company from time to time, uh, perhaps you'll consider becoming one of our patrons, that is, the people who help support the show. And you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash the next track and making a, a modest donation that we'll renew every month, maybe a, a buck or two or three or four. That'd be fine. Whatever you can do. We'd appreciate it. Now it is time for the part of the show where we tell you about our next tracks. Kirk, what have you got this week?
1: My next track pick actually is tangentially related to our discussion today. It is a re-release of a cassette compilation from 1980 called From Brussels with Love. This was released by Les Disques du Crepuscule, also known as Twilight Records in Brussels. They had a connection with factory records in the UK. They had a connection with the Brian Eno camp around the obscure records that Brian Eno was doing. And I bought this cassette... Probably not long after it came out, it was a set in a a little square plastic about the size of a um, a seven-inch single with a little booklet. It looked like a fanzine, but it has music by John Fox, Thomas Dolby, Harold Budd, DeRudy Collum, Martin Hannett, the names Michael Nyman, Brian Eno, Bill Nelson, A Certain Ratio, Gavin Bryers. I mean, this was an extraordinary list of musicians. And this really turned me on to so many artists I didn't know. So a 40th anniversary two-disc edition was just released. What it contains is a whole lot of stuff that was originally considered for the first edition, but that wasn't put on it. It's two and a half hours, which is quite long. The original was well over 60 minutes. It's got more by John Fox, Bill Nelson, De Combe. It's got It's got a poem by Richard Jobson speaking over Tuxedo Moon, an interview with Marguerite Duras. Some bands that I never heard of, Polyphonic Size, Marine, The Names, Repetition. A lot of these were Belgian bands. So the link between this compilation and the topic of our podcast episode is that All the people around this record label launched a performance space in Brussels called Plonka, Plan K, pronounced Plonka in French. And October 16, 1979, Joy Division performed there. This was the first time they sang Love Will Tear Us Apart live. And the headliner for that show was actually William Burroughs. Cabaret Voltaire also played there. If you've ever seen the movie Control about Joy Division, this is a show that is reproduced in that film. The meetings of people around this had a huge effect on indie and avant-garde music in the UK, in Europe, in the United States. It's a lovely package. It's a LP-sized booklet with lots of pictures, reproductions of the original pages, two CDs, as I said. Um, So it's very, very nice to have this, to go back and think of just how extraordinary it was to listen to this on my Walkman back in 1980, discovering all this music. Doug, what have you got?
0: I have a brand new EP by a band called The Network, and the EP is called Trans Am. Now, The Network isn't really a band; uh, isn't really a real band. The Network is Green Day, and this is their second uh, release as The Network. They've also put out records as The Foxborough Hot Tubs, and The Foxborough Hot Tubs do '70s sounding music. Well, The Network does '80s sounding music, and it's Abstract impressions of bands like Kraftwerk, Devo, B-52s, any number of any number of bands in the '80s that were dance-oriented. The, now, the funny thing about this EP—it's 11 minutes long. There are four songs on it. Two of them are about two minutes. Two of them are about three minutes. They're very funny, especially if you know this music. The the title track, Trans Am. The chorus is something to the effect of, "Whenever she's near, Trans Am." You know, it's that, that craft work sort of, very sort of punctuated singing, sort of like this. It's, it's hilarious. Um, second song is called Flat Earth. It's about how they believe that the, the earth is flat. Uh, fentanyl is the third song. It's about fentanyl. The fourth song is the one that's getting all the press. The fourth song is called Ivanka is a Nazi. And Ivanka is spelled with three Ks. So you kind of get an idea of where they're going with this. Now, the, the the idea that it's a a great parody of this 80s dance music, it's even if you didn't know that, I think you would still like the record. It's still fun to listen to. It's fast enough so that it's over quick enough. I don't know if they're going to put out a full album. It's certainly possible that they have or they will. I have the first The Network album that came out 15 years ago, and it's the same sort of stuff. But this, this is just a lot of fun to listen to. Uh, I, I, have, I haven't stopped listening to it, actually, since it came out about a week ago. Trans Am by The Network is my next track. This was episode number 198 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit TheNextTrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, and it's your support that keeps us going. Visit Patreon.com slash The Next Track. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.